Good morning, everybody. That was a good one. Where'd that good one come from? Okay, that was a good one. Get it all out. Because if you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, um, we're in the Sermon on the Mount in our big series through the Gospel of Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount has been very difficult because Jesus has been revealing his sort of perfect ethical and moral standard. And he's been doing this by taking the law found in the Old Testament in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and kind of probing them and examining them, going deeper and far beyond kind of the initial interpretations. And if you've been tracking, it's sort of been like a gut punch every week. Like you might have thought, you know, I'm doing all right. But over the last three weeks, you're going, I think I am a murderous, adulterous liar who never keeps my oaths or my words. And uh, it's been pretty rough. And uh, this week is the worst. Well, it it depends on your personality. For me, it's, it's the worst. Um, we've gone through this, these different categories of murder, lust, div- divorce, oaths, and now we're going to be doing, dealing with retaliation. So Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, this first part, very common and popular phrase, eye for an eye tooth for a tooth. Basically means there's a a one-to-one correspondence. You steal 200 bucks from me, uh, 200 bucks is owed. Uh, You punch me, I'm going to punch you back type of thing. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And Jesus is quoting several passages in the Old Testament. Um, So these words would have been familiar to the people listening. We're in northern Galilee. These first century Jews would be familiar with this kind of thinking, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Exodus 21 says, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Leviticus, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life. Anyone injures his neighbor. First service I said inquires because that little thing doesn't look like a J injures his neighbor, and as he's done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury has been given a person shall be given to him. And then another in Deuteronomy 19, your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So there's this stream of Old Testament thought that says this, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And then Jesus comes in and says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, which raises a couple, a couple problems. Like first off, uh, the, the audience wouldn't want to hear any of this. Just like you today, you don't, you don't like this. Like you, you, may, you may foolishly think, oh, I just love all the teachings of Jesus. No one wants to do this. No one wants to do it. And they, 2,000 years ago, they were... Jews in northern Galilee, and they're under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And they're going like, I don't like all this, this stuff. In a moment, Jesus is going to say, love your enemies. They're going to be like, I don't want to do any of this stuff. And then on top of that, an even greater question would be, Jesus, you're quoting Old Testament law. That's God's word. And you're sort of amending it or tweaking it or going beyond it here. 
What gives you the right to do this to God's holy word? And 2,000 years removed, and as Christians, we would say the inevitable implication is Jesus has authority over God's law because he was the very one who wrote the law. He himself is God in the flesh. Therefore, he has the authority to bring out an even greater moral and ethical standard. And we see that revealed in this text. Jesus gives us three um, historic examples of how going beyond this can manifest itself in the world. Now, each one of these examples has a pretty straightforward way of understanding it, but then there's some historical details that add extra meaning. So, for example, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Pretty straightforward. You get slapped, turn the other cheek and get slapped again type of thing. That's, that's not eye for an eye. Eye for an eye would be, you slap me, it's on type of thing. <laughs> Jesus says, you go, you, you're going beyond that. Now, the historical detail that's interesting, match, there, there's a possible historical detail that might match, and it matches some of the interesting language that Jesus chooses, because he says, if, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, on the right cheek. Now, majority of people are right-handed. Um, left-handers, I believe there's less and less of you over time. They're becoming less and less. They're so like, if you're left-handed, you're an endangered species. You should be afforded special protection. Um, <laughs> But for the most part, even back then, most people are right-handed. So you picture that. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, Jesus, Jesus is being specific with his words here. He's, you're getting slapped on the right cheek. That most likely means you're getting a backhand. Right hand to right cheek. It's the backhand. And we know this might be the case because there's Jewish literature later uh, in the Mishnah that talks about fines that were given for types of hits like this. And it said, if you get punched, then there's a $200 fine. If you get the backhand, it's a $400 fine. And most likely it's because, because you might be saying, That's, that doesn't sound right. Like, I'd rather get slapped than punch. A punch got to hurt way more than a slap. And the idea is that the slap also adds shame. And there's an assault on the person's dignity in that. It's not just a physical hit. The idea is that there's a shaming act in getting the backhand. And so Jesus is saying when someone tries to, it's not just merely hitting you, it's trying to shame you. You absorb that. You don't jump to hit back. You turn the other cheek and receive another slap. He goes on with another example. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Again, in one sense, pretty straightforward. Someone's going to take this from you, you give them something extra. However, the, the, this word cloak and tunic is important. Most people would have an undergarment, that would be the tunic, and then there was a cloak around that. Tunic here, the, the Greek is chiton, and it's used throughout Scripture as this kind of undergarment. In the Old Testament law, there was actually protection for people that said you could not take someone's cloak. You could sue them or punish them and take their tunic. You can find them and take their tunic, but you could not take the cloak, which is the outer garment. And the reason for that was it was a protection for the most poor in society because the most poor didn't have multiple sets of clothing and they most likely only had 
the under and the outer garment, and if you were to remove the outer, you would A, be exposing this person to nakedness, and B, the cloak was used by the poor for their blanket at night. And so it was clothing, it was to protect nakedness, and it was also the means to keep warm at night. So Old Testament law actually protected individuals from having the cloak removed. And then Jesus comes and says, no, when someone's going to take the tunic, you give them the cloak as well. And do you see how, like, scandalous these words are? No one went, like, his listeners aren't going, oh, this, this is great, this is fantastic, I'd love to do that. And then the last one, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Straightforward, go the extra mile with someone. The more kind of interesting understanding has to deal with the fact that Israel is under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and a Roman soldier at this time could compel or force a citizen of Israel to do something they didn't want to do. So, for example, a Roman soldier can say, hey, I need a hole dug. You guys dig this hole. I need this food cooked. You, you cook it. Or what would happen oftentimes is you could force someone to walk a mile with you. So a soldier's been carrying his gear. He goes, I'm tired of carrying all this gear. I won't carry it anymore. So you have to carry my gear for this mile. And that's like, this is your enemy. Rome is the enemy. So you have to understand, you don't want to walk with this enemy and you don't want to carry his gear for a mile. And Jesus says, when they force you to do that, go another mile. So he's like, don't want to do this. You don't want to go the extra mile with your enemy? I don't even like to do favors for my friends. I mean, it's like, man, I guess I got to do it. I'm a Christian. I'm your friend, so I'll go do this. And you act like, oh, funny, I'm not like that. Yeah, how many of you, when it's your friends, it's moving day? It's moving day, man. We'll be there from 11 to 4 p.m., pizza served at noon. You show up like at 2.30. The first thing you ask is, is there's leftover pizza? Now, there's some problems here. Uh, first, as we mentioned, it's, it's like, man, this is, Rome's in charge. I don't want to do this turn the other cheek stuff. I don't want to do this walk the extra mile with them. And then secondly, the theological question is, who does this guy think he is? This is God's law in the Old Testament. It talks about this stuff. It says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Who does he think he is? And Jesus is claiming authority over the law. Now, the question for us is, okay, that's fine. Jesus is the author of the law. Therefore, he could could amend it or go beyond it. However, why would he? If the the law is God's word, what would be wrong with it so that Jesus would, would have to have this alteration? And this has to do with something that we've technically been hitting on the last several weeks, namely in the message where we talked about how Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. But you have to understand that the, the nature of the law in the Old Testament. Many of the laws found in the Old Testament were not revealing God's highest and most ideal, perfect ethical standard. They were put in place to restrain and restrict human evil. They were put in place to put boundaries on human wickedness. So it wasn't like this is the standard. It was, I know you guys are 
wicked, so let me put some rules and some restrictions on this type of human behavior. Now, Jesus explicitly states this in a crystal clear way in another passage. Now, I was hesitant to go here because last week we talked about marriage and divorce, and I said we're going to go more fully into that when we hit Matthew 19. However, in Matthew 19, Jesus actually articulates the point that I'm making crystal clear. And so we're not going to dive deep into the issue of of marriage and divorce and and what constitutes that. We're going to deal with that when we get to Matthew Matthew 19. But I want to touch on this briefly to show you how some of the law was put in place, not because it was the ideal standard, but because it was boundaries or borders or restrictions to keep human wickedness in check. Okay. Matthew 19. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Pharisee says, when is it lawful to divorce? Jesus says, don't you know from the beginning Man and woman were meant to be one flesh. God's design is that they would never be separated. But then the Pharisees rightfully ask the next theological question. This is the right question, although their motivation is wrong. It's the right question. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now we'll deal with all those complications when we get to Matthew 19, but what I want us to focus on is this. When is it lawful to divorce? Jesus says, well, the standard has been that men and women come together, become one flesh, and be married forever. Pharisees rightfully ask, well, then why does the law grant permission for divorce and give us a prescription on how that ought to take place? Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart. God was putting rules and restrictions and boundaries on the hardness of hearts of men, but it's not the ideal standard. So you get this. It's not the ideal standard, but God still addresses it because of the fallen world we live in. Likewise, God's highest and perfect ideal standard for human beings is not retaliation. It's forgiveness. It's going the extra mile. It's loving your enemy. And so if you want to you know the like crystal clear ideal, you look to the words of Jesus. So think of it like this, the idea of boundaries and restrictions. Let's say uh, you have a child young child, and you have a nice front yard. You've got a nice front yard. It's got nice grass, nice lawn. On hot days, you want to be able to turn on the sprinklers and let your kid run around, have a good time. But your kid's a little crazy. You live on a busy street, and you don't trust that he's not going to run into the busy street and get hit. So what do you do? You put a fence in your front yard. That fence functions as a border and restriction to keep the child in the safe area where the grass is. Now, that is not the end goal for your child. You want your child to mature to a point 
where you don't have to have a fence around them. You don't want to tell your 30-year-old, don't go outside of the gate, hon. You want your child to develop and mature to the point where they look both ways before crossing, they know how to do it in a safe way, they listen for incoming cars. But at a certain point, because you know the child's prone, prone to run off in the street, you put a fence up. It's barriers and restrictions and boundaries to contain that behavior. And sometimes in the Old Testament, that's what God's doing. But that's not the end goal. It says in the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery. The end goal is not just not to commit adultery. The perfect standard is to, to love your spouse and to be faithful. So, so you see that. There's, there's different ways the law works. And Jesus goes, my perfect standard is not merely eye for an eye. It's turning the other cheek, giving up the garment, and going the extra mile. He goes on. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. Question, is that in the Bible? Does the Old Testament say you shall love your neighbor? Yes, it says you shall love your neighbor the Old Testament. Next question, does it say you should hate your enemy? Hmm. It just says love, love, love your neighbor. It doesn't say then you can hate your enemy. So what's going on? Jesus is entering into a specific debate and discussion and dialogue. And most likely what took place is a development based upon the Old Testament to command, the command to love your neighbor. And it probably went something like this. The Bible says that I should love my neighbor. But what exactly does it mean by love? And what exactly does it mean by neighbor? Because, you know, some of you define neighbor as the, the people to your left and to your right. That's it. And some of you, you like someone's two blocks down, you go, oh yeah, my neighbor. You know, they're, they, they're two blocks down from you. And then for some of you, you know, my whole neighborhood is my neighbor. And that same type of thing was taking place in Jesus' day. They're going like, well, okay, who's my neighbor? Like, where's the line? And we're going to talk about this because this is, this is the heart of the issue. Everyone always wants to know, where's the line? Like, what's the minimum I have to do to, to, to not make you mad at me, God? Like, I got to love my neighbor. It goes for a mile, right? That's it. And then after that, no. And so it's like people would say, well, what if... In Jesus' day, they would say, well, what if, what if there's an Egyptian that comes in to the neighborhood? Are they still considered my neighbor because they're not anything like me? What if they're two miles away? What if they're three miles away? What if it's an Egyptian? What if they're Raider fans? Like, what, what do we do with those households? Like, God, what do you want me to do? And so something developed where it's like, oh man, neighbor is defined like this. And then after that, you have no further instruction. So you could hate someone that's not your neighbor. This same conversation takes place in the Gospel of Luke. So a, a lawyer comes up to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and says, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, like, you know the scriptures. And the guy goes, yes, love God and love people. And she's like, man, good job. Good job, man. You know the scriptures. And then the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? And do you remember how Jesus responds? 
Remember how Jesus responds? He responds with a story. Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that, what is the, what is the, the answer to that? Jesus says, you were to love even a Samaritan. Now, if you know the historical details, you know that the Jews and Samaritans hate each other. They were killing each other. They desecrated each other's temples. Like, they, they were not on the same team. They did not like each other. And it wasn't just a little kind of, oh, you did this, you did this. Again, they were killing each other. And Jesus says, you gotta love even that person. So who is our neighbor, according to Jesus? If the, the vile Samaritan is, then even our enemies are considered in the neighbor category. And so Jesus says these, these, these incredible words. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says, you, you think you're special because you, you're nice to people that you like? Like that doesn't count. Even the tax collectors do that. So he picks up the tax collectors. Would, everyone would agree like, who's the worst people in our society? In this group in Northern Galilee, they go, oh man, the tax collectors. And he goes, you're no better than them, man. You're just, you're just nice to people who you like. You love people who are friends and family. Anybody can do that. Jesus' standard is love even of enemies. And that's a difficult standard, which then leads to a sort of practical, practical questions. And we get put in the same boat as people back then. We immediately, at least I want to, go, okay, I'm supposed to love my enemies. What? Tell me again exactly what that looks like, because I don't really like them. But you're Jesus, you're my Lord, so I'll do as minimal as possible. It's like, you want to know where is the line to define love of enemy? Or it's like, you know, the turn the other cheek type of thing. It's like, how many times, Lord? Because technically you only said once. You know, so I could, you know, is it cool for me to go, okay, I'll turn the other cheek. Do it one more time, bro. Like one more, let's go. One more time. It says turn the other cheek, singular, not plural. One other time, strike me and it's on, man. I'm free to kill you type of thing. It's like, let's go. You know, some of you are having flashbacks to high school. You know, those, everyone will start fighting. Like, what's up? And you'd be like, let's go, let's go, throw down, hit me. And you're just, it's, so it's the same version of that, but the Christian version of it would be, you got to hit me twice. And you're just instigating. Like, so again, you're wanting to know a line. And we talked about this last week where um, you picture high school students in a romantic relationship. And they, they believe they love each other, that they're going to get married, even though the statistics show that the vast majority of high school relationships end horribly. Um, it's just reality. I'm sorry to break that to you. If, if, if you have a teenager in that category and they're not familiar with those stats, you could let them know after church. It's, it's okay. 
And every, every time I say that, someone emails me, we were that couple that made it. Good for you. You're the exception. Okay. Okay. So they love each other. They're in high school. Everything's great. And then the dude goes to the youth pastor and says, um, how far is too far? What does the Bible say we could do? It's like, you know what they're asking. They're not asking like, you know, could we, like what type of restaurants we can go to. And like, they, they want to know physically how far they can go. And that question, how far we can go, whatever you say, wherever the line is, they're going to go right to that line, man, and like live there. I'm going to build a house on that line. <laughs> and where the line is, is a fundamentally different question than, Lord, how can I best honor you with my relationships? Lord, what will bring you the most glory in my relationship? How can this, this relationship be, be saturated in Jesus? How can it bring you glory? Do you, do you see the fundamental different heart posture? And I'm just telling you, whenever we deal with the Sermon on the Mount, everyone wants to know exactly where the lines are and just tell us what we could do or what we can't do. And Jesus is giving us a, an ideal, a standard, and says strive for that. But it reveals something about our hearts. It's like, what do I, when do I get, when do I get to, to fight, man? When do I get to, what's the minimum amount of love? You know, who exactly is my neighbor? It can't, it can't go all the way to Hollister, man. <laughs> Gotta love those people. Morgan Hill type of thing. Okay. Now, practically and historically, Christians have dealt with those issues. And there's like all different ways Christians have manifested love for enemies. And I don't know, I'm just, I'm gonna reveal my cards. I, I can't give you any formula on what exactly that looks like. Here is the line, here is the line. Do this in this situation. Don't do this in this situation. We just have this standard of love of enemies. So here's one example. In the 1500s, a guy by the name of Dirk Willems was in prison for his faith. In the 1500s, he's in prison, and he escapes. He escapes prison, and it's freezing cold, so much to the point where the ponds that he's escaping through have frozen over to ice. Now, because he's malnourished and fed on rations, he's pretty light, so he's, he's able to walk across this, these ponds that have frozen over pretty quickly, and the ice isn't breaking. However, he begins to be chased, by a guard who weighs more. He's, he's been eating food and probably has some gear on. Now this guard falls through the ice and begins to drown. What does Dirk Williams do? By the way, he's, he's in prison sentenced to death. What does he do? What would you do? That's an easier question because we know what we would do. <laughs> Later. <laughs> it's like, what's up, man? Dirk goes back, rescues the man, is subsequently recaptured, and ultimately executed. He's burned at the stake. Now, that's love of enemy, right? That's love of enemy. Now, who knows what God did through that man's story? The fact that I'm telling it today says that that mattered. And who knows People might have come to, to know Jesus through that man's testimony. 
Then, like, what is, and it's complicated, though. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful story, but it's extremely complicated. What, what, think about the, the Christians in World War II Nazi Germany. There's all kinds of responses. Some Christians just turned a blind eye to, to the evil. And so we'll put that in a different, different category. That's just, they, they ignored it and just looked out for themselves. There, was, there wasn't even love of enemy. There wasn't even love of, of neighbor at all. So this, it's like all bad. But then there were Christians who said, we have to do something about what's taking place. And some said, um, some were committed to never inflicting physical harm to another human being made in the image of God. And so they said, we are only going to speak out against this. We're going to speak out against it. We're going to use our speech to condemn what's occurring. And then there were some Christians who said, innocent people are dying, so we'll take up arms. We'll do whatever we can to stop this evil. Then there were some Christians who said, no, God never wants us to kill another person made in the image of God, but this is so evil, so we have to do something about it. So we're going to take up physical arms, but we're going to ask for forgiveness as we do so. And you could read brilliant theologians trying to work through that and wrestle through that. You know, and it's like, man, those are, what, what does love of enemy look like? And that's on the macro level. I mean, you could just put it down like on a micro level with something that happens to you. You know, what, what, what would you do in, in, in situations and Christians have historically had different answers to those sets of questions. And I've, I've studied this stuff and I've read it over and I can tell you that um, there are brilliant people who think a number of different things, but ultimately I don't know of a single, f- formula, single formula that you put in and maps it out for all these different types of situations. What we have is a standard that God has given us and that's to love enemy. And then how does that manifest in the world? Well, that takes wisdom and scripture reading and figuring out how how does this best manifest itself in the world. Although I don't have a formula that teaches us the precise things we are to do in every situation, I do believe there are some key biblical ideas and principles that will help guide us and help us navigate. And more importantly, they will properly orient our hearts to love of God, love of neighbor, and love of enemy. So, first, um, justice is a good thing. Justice is a good thing. The Bible says this again and again and again and again. But God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Bible says that he he would rather have people repent. So the fundamental posture of our heart should not be rejoicing in the death of enemies, but praying for repentance, praying for repentance. And so it's easy to look out in the world and identify things that you don't like, people you don't like, and make them the enemy to such a point where like, if something bad were to happen, you'd actually rejoice. You know what I, you do, do you know what I mean by this? We can vilify people so much that if something bad were to happen to them, we'd actually rejoice. And the Bible says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants to see people turn from their wickedness. So guiding principle number one is that Christians' fundamental posture should be we pray for people to turn to repentance. We pray for people to turn to repentance. Number two, um, we need to train our eyes to see everyone as being made in the image of God. 
Because one of the things that happens historically when great atrocities occur, it begins with the dehumanization of the other. You look at other people and you begin to dehumanize them. And when you begin to dehumanize, you have the tendency then to do them wrong. Nearly all the genocides in human history start like this. And maybe you won't be confronted with something like that, but check your heart. Like you could, you could dislike people in your workplace so much that over time, like you're slowly dehumanizing them and you don't even know. And here's the test. I'll give you a little quick test. If something bad were to happen to him, would you be happy? Like maybe you've never thought about hating someone to the degree that you want to kill them, but you've been like, at lunchtime, you'd be like, man, if they got fired, that'd be awesome. It'd be so good if they, I, for, I don't, I know they got kids, they'll figure it out, man. Or you go, man, it'd be even better. What if I got promoted over them and I was their boss? I can make their life horrible. That'd be great. And so you begin to see everyone as an image bearer, valuable to God. And then third, you have to understand that um, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities, spiritual powers. The enemy hates humanity. Satan hates humanity, and he wants human beings to hate each other. And our history is filled with hating each other. And so you have to understand that your fight is never against just another human being. There's other things at work. And that's hard because we are thoroughly materialist in that modern secularism has taught us that only the physical world is what matters. That's what's real. There's more at work than just the physical and then lastly, you understand that I don't have to hate and I can hope for repentance because I know I don't have to retaliate. I know that vengeance doesn't belong to me. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So Christians can deal with things because they know that God is sovereign and will one day bring justice perfectly. And God is patient so that many would repent. And likewise, we are to pray and hope for repentance and turning from wickedness. But this is all very difficult because, again, nobody likes this stuff. Nobody wants to turn the other cheek. Nobody wants to, to give up the garment. Nobody wants to go the extra mile. But you're a Christian, and Jesus is Lord. And so you submit to his ethics. You say, Lord, I want to be under these things. And even though you, you may not have everything completely figured out, you can look at the scriptures and say, there's a posture of my heart that I aspire to. When I see other people, I want to love them. I want them to repent. I want them to come to know Jesus. And we do that precisely because God has first given us mercy. And so we want to see that extended to others as well. Because here's the thing. For all the division that exists in the world today, in a sense, we were always on the same team. We were always on the same team. And you may think here's the nice fluffy answer of like, we're always on the same team because God loves us all. Well, that's true. But here's the way we're all on the same team. We were all enemies of God. And we rebelled against him. 
But while we were enemies of God and wanted him dead, Christ died for us. And so the same way that God brought us into his family, we pray that for the world because that's the power of the gospel. The gospel takes enemies and makes them neighbors and then turns neighbors into friends and then turns friends into family. You were once an enemy of God and now you are brought into his family and adopted. That's the power of the gospel. Now, Jesus doesn't give us um, anything to do that he himself did not do. And here's, here's the creepy, eerie thing. Jesus embodies the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. And he does it so much, it's, it's, it's like the Sermon on the Mount is not just teaching, it's almost is prophecy. And Jesus will embody these commands to a degree that, that's eerily haunting. So right now in Jesus' life, everyone likes him. He's doing miracles, man. He healed my uncle. Go, Jesus. Then the tides of popular opinion will turn against Jesus, and they'll hand him over and betray him and ask for him to be killed, right? And then look at the story of Jesus' death. What occurs? He is beaten. He is hit on the cheek. He is hit on the face. And what does he do? He can call down 10,000 angels, but he not only turns the other cheek, he allows those people to tear out the hair and flesh on his cheeks. The scriptures tell us they, they pull out his beard. So he goes beyond turning the cheek. And then what do they do after the beating? They remove his clothing. They strip him naked. They cast lots. They take his outer garment. And he's rendered naked, adding shame to the beating. And then what happens? He doesn't just go an extra mile with a Roman guard or centurion carrying the gear. He carries his own execution device of Calvary, going far beyond than just going the extra mile. And then he's crucified and nailed immovable to a cross. And as they suspend him in the air, what are the words coming out of his mouth? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he is faithful to his dying breath. And in the death of Jesus, you see the Sermon on the Mount embodied perfectly. And we as Christians strive to be like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus, right? We take up our cross and follow him. This is what it means to be a Sermon on the Mount people. So what I want to do is make it incredibly practical at this point because there's not Roman centurions coming to attack us. There's not Roman guards making us walk an extra mile. But hatred and bitterness in our life can, can, can sneak in. And we begin to, to, to hate other people and we create enemies. That's the opposite of the gospel direction. The gospel flow is enemies into family. Not pushing people to enemies. But it's so easy. Especially in this world because of the brokenness in this world. And so there, there are people who you don't like. There are people who you might hate. And there are people who you might hate, and with every earthly reason, you have every right to hate them for what they've done. So I'm not going to say this is easy. I mean, there's a wide spectrum of some of you just got, just dislike this person, some of you hate this person, then some of you have been wrong, and you really hate this person. But here's the thing. Why we were enemies... Christ died for us. In the same way we've received mercy, 
We want people to repent and to change and turn from their wickedness. And we can do that precisely because we know that if people don't, vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's not pretending that justice never comes or justice isn't a good thing. It's saying, I put justice in your hands, God. Remove the hate in my heart. Remove the bitterness in my heart. I don't want to live like that. You loved your enemies, and so I want to do the same, and I got a lot of issues with this person, but I give them over, to, I, give, I take that hatred, give them to you. Justice is in your hand. And we're all going to answer to God one day. So as we close, I'd like us just to, and really practical, if you have, um, if you've made enemies out of another image bearer, I want you to, to, to name that person or those people in your head and, and give them to God. Like right now, you just, Lord, take my hatred, take my bitterness, take it from me, Lord. Justice is in your hands, it's not mine. And if I got what I deserved, I wouldn't be here. So help me, Lord, just give, me, give it to you. And as we do this, we ask the Lord to make us a Sermon on the Mount people. People who don't just murder, but people who remove the anger from our hearts. People who don't just commit adultery, but remove lust from our hearts. People who have a yes be yes and a no be no, who stick to the truth. We speech, our speech is truth. And people who learn to love our enemies, precisely because why we were enemies, Christ died for us. Give those names to the Lord right now and take this from me. And we're going to transition into communion, so please stand. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body broken for you. It was broken for his enemies. Jesus' body was broken for his enemies. His body was broken for us. And the gospel turns enemies into friends and into family. No matter how far off you were, no matter much of an enemy you were, the gospel got a hold of you and you belong to him. You are the family of God. And we take this today and remember as the family of God. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup, the cup of the new covenant, the blood of our Lord poured out. And we take this and we say we want to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus till he returns. And so we, may we not only be faithful in our proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but that we would live in light of that, proving faithful to our Lord, trying to be like our Lord to the best of our ability. And so we give you thanks, Father, that while we were sinners, your Son died for us, that before the foundations of the world, Jesus was the Lamb that was slain, and I pray that you would just work on all of our hearts, 
that the fundamental posture of our hearts would be pointed to the ethics revealed in the Sermon on the Mount. Not what type of anger constitutes murder, what type of lust constitutes adultery, but how can we best honor you? Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing. Continue to work in us. Continue to conform us to the image of your Son. It's in his name we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.